Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Anne is back alongside fellow KCSA'er and first-time host Emmeline Lewis for a new episode with special guests Dr. Jim Fadiman, PhD, an independent microdosing researcher known as the father of microdosing and author of numerous books, textbooks, and more, as well as Adam Bramlage, founder of Flow State Micro, the leader in microdosing supplements, education, and community. Jim and Adam join us this week to discuss microdosing nuances, their shared talk at Psychedelic Science 2023, Flow State Micro's virtual workshop offerings, and Adam's one-on-one mentorship program, the top microdosing misconceptions, and what psychedelic legalization might look like. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Fadiman, his books, or Flow State Micro and its variety of offerings, visit the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow Adam and Flow State Micro on Instagram and LinkedIn. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Dr. Jim Fadiman, independent microdosing researcher, and Adam Bramlage of Flow State Micro. Jim and Adam, we are so excited to have you both here. We uh, we were talking before uh, we had intended to do this at Psychedelic Science, um, but life gets in the way, and uh, I think it's it's maybe a good time, a good thing that we've you know had kind of a moment to breathe. Um, and collect our wits uh, post conference, um, and you know maybe maybe this is just the, the the conversation and the timing that it was meant to be. So uh, we're so excited that that you, that we have you here, and you know like we were talking about, we've talked a lot about the science of psychedelics and what the FDA is going to do, and and you know all of that stuff. But we have and, and as it pertains to you know. Um, PTSD or depression or um, eating disorders and addictions, but we don't really spend a lot of time talking about um, the the healing and the transformational aspects of psychedelic science um, and microdosing, and that's about to change today. So, um, Jim, just we're so honored to have you here. We'll start with you. Um, you are really recognized as the father of microdosing. Can you just tell us? where your journey began and and then maybe we'll we'll get into the connection with Adam and and your relationship sure um, about I guess about 11 years ago I had lunch with a uh, uh, Robert Fort and Robert Fort was a very kind of secret fundamental part of why MDMA appeared and he also had conferences in psychedelics did a book of exercise about Tim Leary's been in everything with everybody and and we had lunch. And he talked about uh, very low doses and how they, how Hoffman had used them um, and that he had been looking at them for his own interests. And I looked across the table and thought, I couldn't be less interested. <laughs> I'm only interested in very high doses, transcendental experiences, seeing yourself in God and everything in the universe. What possibly could I be interested in in this kind of bottom scoop of psychedelics. And of course, the universe said, you shouldn't say things like that. I have a sense of humor, even if you don't. So (laughs) I ended up working entirely for the past decade in microdosing, which is very tiny doses that are um, below threshold, meaning you have no psychedelic um, experiences at all, no uh, transformations of your therapy world, no discovery of your past lives, um, no uniting with all the deities you've ever read about, no anacondas eating you, none of that stuff. In a sense, what people say about microdosing is, I worked a little better, I enjoyed people a little more, even ones I don't like, Um, I had a healthier lunch than usual, and at the end of the day, I thought, oh yeah, I microdosed. 
So it's a much subtler, uh, subtler world, and a much it turns out to be um, far more extensive and probably eventually more important than high doses can ever be. So talk about where Adam comes into the picture here. And Adam, if you could give a little bit of background on yourself, too. Yeah, I can talk about how I, I came into Jim's life. I met Jim about four years ago after he spoke at a conference in Utah. And I was already working with a handful, a few dozen patients or clients, I should say, that were using microdosing uh, to aid in their mental health, uh, some with addiction. And I just had a, a series of amazing, almost miracle-like stories of people who have treated ailments that they hadn't been able to treat for years with microdosing. And I began to share that data with Jim and we became close friends and colleagues and, and you know, share the experiences of citizen sciences, scientists out in the world who are benefiting or maybe not benefiting from microdosing. Um, so that's that's how I met Jim at a conference a few years back. Um, I So when we talk microdosing, are we, um, is it, what what's the the drug just for our for our audience or what what's the substance that we are what we are mostly talking about here? We're about the substances we're talking about and the size of dose we're talking about for the lot of your audience that knows that stuff. Ninety five percent of microdosing is either LSD or the kind of chemicals that turn into LSD and psilocybin from psilocybin containing mushrooms almost zero synthetic psilocybin, and we'll we'll explain why later. That's it. Plus a lot of other substances that people are trying and that we're seeing becoming of interest. Now that microdosing exists, people are saying, well, maybe it'll work for this, maybe it'll work for that. But we're still dealing predominantly with LSD, and the dose range for most people is like 6 to 12 micrograms. And we're dealing with mushrooms, and it's um, one half of one tenth of a gram to about four tenths of a gram. There's some outliers on both ends, and we may get to that, but that handles most people, most doses, and most substances. And so that's 50 milligrams to maybe 300 to 400 milligrams for magic mushrooms. Um, or psilocybin, what Jim is is saying, but most people are using mushrooms or LSD. So you two led the microdosing uh, talk, remarkable results, surprising implications talk at um, Psychedelic Science 2023. Can yes. you share more about this and uh, what some of the surprising implications that you presented were? <laughs> well, I live with surprising implications. So. Um, <laughs> The surprising implications in the first place is how powerful and effective it is for a lot of conditions that are very hard to treat. Second was that it has very similar results to conditions that are highly uh, researched by high doses. Let me give you an example. Most of the high dose research that gets the most press is about how it alleviates depression. And if you kind of skip down to the numbers, about 80% and people um, don't get depressed again for three weeks to three months to maybe a year. Microdosing has about an 80% success rate with depression. But the difference is uh, people are taking it either on their own or with coaching, but they're not have, they're not sitting, mm -hmm. in a, it's not a session. It's something you take in your daily routine. And um, the difference in cost, and, and I know this sounds silly, but it is, it's about a thousand to one, which is a month worth of microdosing. If you buy it from a trusted friend or a friend of a trusted friend, it's about $10 for a month. If you're taking it in a research study, it's about 10 to $20,000. And if you're taking it with one of the companies that's trying to save money, um, it's about $10,000. So we're really dealing with a curious thing that this is the same condition, the same people. They're all what we call treatment resistant, meaning the drugs that are out there didn't help. And they're reporting um, these, these total reversals of very, very long-term distress. 
So one of my old friends and a student, you know, said, I'm for the first time in 31 years, I am not taking antidepressants. That's remarkable for something that is, you know, a 20th to a 50th of a therapeutic dose. So that's what we're looking at. And that's where the kind of surprises that's within the psychedelic world. If we go a little outside um, and you look at, say, migraine headaches, chronic migraine headaches. And again, if you look at what's done for them, it's, it's a lot of possibilities. And when there's ever a lot of possibilities, what that means is we don't have anything that's that good. So we have, again, uh, for almost everyone with migraines, the migraines do not vanish. They simply dropped about 90% of, of what they, 10% uh, of what they were. Um, and this is um, not something that works well with a high dose. Because a migraine, you need to re, you're basically allowing the brain to reset itself so that it doesn't cause migraines. And that's something that microdosing simply does better than pretty much anything we know. So that's the kind of surprises that we were talking about. And what happened, of course, at the end of the talk, um, Adam was mobbed by people who had individual and personal questions. So... That's the so, way it looks whenever we talk. And and Adam, let's talk a little bit about what, you know, what this what coaching entails. I mean, I think a lot of people um a lot of people have been in therapy and a lot of people have um had prescription drugs, right? And there's this like western medicine of like I don't feel well, I go to the doctor, I get a consultation, I get a pill or whatever. Um or I go and I have therapy and I talk to someone. Where does coaching fit in in that? It may and probably doesn't fit into that spectrum, but but I guess can you talk a little bit about your approach? Yeah, with coaching, obviously it's it's individualized to each person, but more than anything, it's about education and harm reduction, right? It's about educating the individual on how to use these substances on their own, how to measure them out, which one might be good for them. What's their intention? Um, you know, a lot of times when people go to a doctor, they're prescribed the medication and maybe they're never in contact with a doctor again. A coach is checking in on that person the first day, the first week, multiple times through the month. So there's a dialogue that's created between the two if the individual has any questions. A lot of people tend to have questions as they begin the process, right? A coach is also going to help this person identify what's the best protocol for them to microdose. Now, the thing with microdosing is not only is it taking non-intoxicating doses of psychedelics, but it's taking them on a regular basis, right? It's not seven days a week, but you're on cert certain protocols where it may be five days on, two days off, or four days on, three days off. So a coach is gonna help with the protocol, it's gonna help with the substance, and then it's gonna be somebody that can support them throughout the process of that first month. And that first month is really when the coach is really connecting with the individual because that first month is obviously, um, it's important and we really suggest that you do a full month of microdosing before you decide whether it works or not. Most people who start microdosing without a coach on their own, um, and this is coming from a survey of 32,000 people, found that they quit, 20 to 40% quit within three days because they couldn't figure out the dosage, um, they took too high of a dose and they got uncomfortable um, and they just gave up. Whereas with mm -hmm. a coach, you're probably not going to take the wrong dose because we like to start low and go slow. And um, if you did take the wrong dose, you've got somebody to contact and kind of support you through maybe those first few uncomfortable minutes of, of the experience. Again, it's such a small dose, though. Um, you're not really getting into any classical psychedelic um, ranges. Now, I should also mention that Adam suggests that people also clean up their lives. <laughs> so are you so like life coach also creeps in there, too? <laughs> uh, but you but you truly like you you talk diet and you talk um, sleep and, and general wellness. Right. So you're you're talking about like an ecosystem more than just a mic like here's here's. Absolutely. And, and people enjoy talking to somebody um, who's not a therapist, right? There's something about not laying on a couch with a therapist and having somebody that's trying to motivate you where I feel like a lot of times people can be more honest with me. So 
we're not by, we're not teaching them that this is a magic pill. We're teaching them that this is something that's going to help them motivate to make changes in their life. And so we're going to look at their diet. What are you eating? You know, we're going to look at their exercise routine. That's a big one for me and my clients. You have to move your body. We're going to look at, you know, um, are you getting outside in nature? Are you on your phone all the time? So there's a lot of different things we look at. And for in order for someone to change their life, they have to make changes. So microdosing is really a lot of times just a catalyst for people to make changes. Um, I know in mental health, which is where most of my clients are coming from, that it's allowing people to be more creative and kind of get out of that default mode network of ruminating depression and always thinking the negative thoughts. So I'm really excited about microdosing for what it can do for mental health and, and for people. A lot of my clients are using microdosing to taper off of a lifetime of pharmaceuticals. And then after their pharmaceuticals, maybe they microdose for a couple months. And then before you know it, they're not microdosing at all. So what's amazing is it's helping a lot of people off of pharmaceuticals and getting them to a place where eventually they're not using anything. Yeah, that's that's notice that the point the, it's kind of the opposite of antidepressants, et cetera, which is your, you know, your physician or your therapist says, you know, try this for a month and I'm not going to tell you, you'll probably take it the rest of your life. Okay. With microdosing, the goal is not only start low and go slow, but taper, don't get caught microdosing beyond what you find necessary or desirable. And it's available to you when you feel it's important. So, Jim, in your book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, you discuss varying doses and the effects of the psychedelics. Um, can you explain to our listeners like the differences between a spiritual high and a therapeutic or a moderate high and, and a problem solving like the, like the low dose that we are um, talking about with microdosing? Sure. OK, but um, let me do it very simply with doses. Microdoses simply allow the body to readjust itself towards better health which the body is very good at. When we get into higher doses, where we're talking about altering consciousness, um, there is um, there's what we call a concert dose. You know, it's no surprise that when you go to concerts, it's as much light show and a noise show as it is, you know, um, one, poor, one, one well overpriced, wonderful person at the front of the house. There's also, uh, again, this shows my age, but we had a, a dose called a museum dose. Yeah. which is when you go and the paintings say, oh, I'm very glad you came. And Van, <laughs> goes, Van goes, you understand, oh, so you say, oh, that's what Van Gogh was, was trying to see. I see exactly what he's doing, and so forth. Um, when you go into a little higher dose, it's called a therapeutic dose, where you're able to, to think about and talk about serious problems with someone who can help you. And therapists like that dose because they get to talk to people and they get to basically run their number at a at a at a much faster faster rate of healing. Therapists love working with psychedelics. When you get beyond, we're now approaching the edge of your personal identity, and we're getting towards a as kind of a spiritual dose where you begin to disidentify just with this little box that I'm in. And begin, as Michael Pollan says, uh, he saw that his identity was plastered all over the landscape like a coat of paint. But it was still Michael Pollan's identity. When you get up one level higher, this is higher doses, and these might be called transcendent dose. That's when you realize that you are not one with everything. You are everything. Um, it's the difference. If you go to the ocean and you say to an individual wave, um, who are you? And you say, well, I'm a very individual wave. I'm larger than this wave, and I'm taller than that wave, and I have this much more foam. And a few minutes later, the, the, the wave says, oh, my God, I'm part of the ocean. So that's the place where the higher doses come, where you see that you are part of everything. And, and really, we know from physics that this is a bunch of molecules hanging together, and they're all vibrating, and that, and that so is this. It's just vibrating a little slower. And so when you get to the place where there is no differentiation, there's also no time, there's no space, and uh, the, the reports are very, very similar, if not identical, to classic mystical experiences that are at the heart of almost all religious tradition. So that's the, the span. 
Do now you I think save you oh. buy the whole book? <laughs> <laughs> no, still buy the book. Everyone still buy the book. We'll put a link in the show notes. <laughs> Do you think um I mean, psychedelics is um, is definitely uh, uh, having a moment seems too cute and lazy. But um, do you think that there that there's a misconception that psychedelics, Jim, are primarily the last thing you just talked about? This huge mystical, you know, experience that can be very scary for people, be very and be very traumatic. But in truth, there's a there's a whole spectrum of of ways that psychedelic medicine can be healing. Um, and so do you find that you're both of you actually, Adam, this is a great question for you. Are you, um, what misconceptions are you battling the most? Well, see, I'm, I, I don't remember the sixties. I was the sixties. <laughs> okay. So I very early on, there was at one point, uh, there was something called deprogramming, which is when someone was in a cult, and you're, you know, your kid was in a cult and you finally mm -hmm. rescued him. And he said, but I still believe all that shit. And you mm -hmm. said, I'm going to give you to this guy who's going to deprogram you and right. get you back to being, you know, middle class and, and competitive. So at one point, the little group I was working with doing psychotherapy, kind of therapeutic work, um, we were on the list that you could, if anyone had taken psychedelics with us and were, could be captured, they could be deprogrammed. So the misconstruction, the, the kind of confusion is the federal government decided for absolutely no scientific and no psychological reason to make psychedelics illegal. The reason was President Nixon wanted a way to attack certain groups that he hated. He hated blacks, he hated Jews, he hated hippies, and he really hated people that didn't think Vietnam was a splendid idea. But as he was informed by his inner circle, you can't arrest people just because you hate them. So they came up with the idea of making something they were associated with illegal. And as Ehrlichman said in a wonderful interview, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So there's a lot of propaganda out there. And these are very powerful substances that give people an experience, which also often changes their basic orientation. Now, it makes them more, uh, more interested in nature, um, more interested in human kindness. Um, it makes them less ag aggressive, and we actually have national data on that. Um, so it was, it was culturally disruptive. But those of us who were disrupting it felt that the culture that was coming out of psychedelics was a healthier culture. And mm -hmm. that's still going on. So when I when people say, well, I don't want to take those mm -hmm. drugs, and I say, well, then don't. Yeah. You know, that's fine. Yeah. And the, the, the argument gets very quiet very fast. And people who come up to me always for years and say, I'm thinking of taking LSC, but and I say, don't. Don't do it. And I say, but I haven't told you my reason. I say, if you have a reason not to take it, don't take it. So this is not something that has been pushed. Um, Allen Ginsberg was on the radio once uh, talking about marijuana, and he, he had this great comment. He said, imagine, this is now when marijuana is way illegal, thousands of people are in jail and so forth. He says, imagine what we could do if we advertise the way cigarettes do. Look how well we're doing being, you know, sh shamed and illegal and jailed imagine if we were allowed to advertise well now we're in that next step mm -hmm. we're now there's now amazing things that you can buy online including by the way things that are still illegal you can still buy online it's quite amazing um so we're shifting and the culture is shifting and like any form of ignorance it takes a generation however the um the group most likely to be using marijuana for the first time are now older people, not young. I people. know. Uh, yes. We're, we're working with um, a wonderful uh, woman, Sue Taylor, um, uh, at Glasshouse. And she 
um, is in her 70s and her second career, she is a retired, and we're going to have her on the podcast, but she's a retired Catholic school principal. Um, and her, you know, and she, she had aches and pains and realized, you know, let me, <laughs> I'll let her tell her story. But I mean, she is a huge proponent and, and educational activist for um, the senior population um, and alleviating pain and helping to sleep, which are, I mean, first of all, we all have those problems, but, you know, I, I think it's incredible that, um, you know, this, the fastest growing demographic of, of cannabis users, I don't know what it is for, for microdosing or for um, psychedelics use. I don't know which, which, demographic is trending higher there, but I think it's certainly fascinating that cannabis is one where, where the senior population is really speaking to it in my own life. I mean, my, my aunts and uncles who are in their seventies are like, what are you doing? Can you bring, can you bring me, can you bring me some gummies? You know, like, and so yeah, whatever's going to help you. Um, Adam, what are some of your, I mean, you're, you're in a slightly different generation. Um, what are, what, what is your, um, what is your take like? Because I, I don't know how old you are, but I, I assume you remember the kind of the generation of like, just say no and all of this other just propaganda, you know, that that Jim was talking about, but in a different way. Yeah, I grew up in the 80s during just say no and, and the Reagan years and all of that stuff. The and cracking of the egg on the frying pan. Yeah, <laughs> this is your brain on drugs. And, right, and right, right. here is the biggest challenge is debunking all this misinformation that was uh, deeply ingrained into our, a lot of our DNA of just believing that LSD fries your brain like an egg or certain things like that. And I think the other misconception conception are is that psychedelics are new they're a new thing they're new to oh, human evolution and society um when in reality we've been microdosing and using psychedelics for tens of thousands of years and that can be traced back to multiple societies so you know we have to debunk all of the lies you know long before nixon created the drug war lsd was being used on thousands of people it was treating alcoholism it, it treated uh, ethel kennedy and robert f kennedy jr's wife and, and helped her so it's just about getting back to the reality that we've got plenty of years of successful tests we already know this works scientifically and secondly, we've been using this for thousands of years. You know, microdosing was not created by Jim Fadiman and Robert Fort over lunch. It's an indigenous practice that's happened probably for hundreds of thousands of years. And before it was an indigenous practice, it was an animal practice. So um, it's something we've learned from animals through time. So intoxication using psychedelics is something the animal world does. It's something the human world does. And so effectively, when Nixon made the war on drugs, he made a war against being human, right? He made a war against intoxication. Um, and that's simply just a part of our life. So I think it's important to realize intoxication is a part of our life. And it's important to realize that we've used these successfully without clinical trials for tens of thousands of years. Can you just expand a little bit more on the animal use of it. I mean, I've heard, you know, stories, but they're almost accidental. So can you talk a little bit about the more habitual use, like how, how animals might be, you know, licking a cactus? <laughs> yeah, the, the one image, because it's such a beautiful image, it's reindeer and there's snow and it's a couple inches of snow and they're pawing the, the ground. And they were, what you see is a little Amanita muscaria mushroom, the Christmas mushroom oh. with the white spots and the red. And then they're eating it. And it's this wonderful, you know, they know what they're looking for. And they know why they're eating it. So they're not the only animals. Yeah, it's amazing. I've been able to to trace literally every continent but Antarctica. There's an ancient indigenous society that's used microdosing, and most of them have learned about these psychedelic plants through animals. Um, the most ancient one is Australia, the first peoples of Australia. They learned about using paturi, which is a DMT flower in small doses to aid in hunting, and they learned that through watching animals eat the flower. Um, and they learned it that way. You can go to the Amazon and the Tucano tribe learned about using ayahuasca in small doses for hunting from watching the jaguar eat it. Um, so there's just all of these, you go to Africa and Iboga was introduced to the Buiti population uh, through the porcupine. 
um, and and boars also eat iboga. So humans have looked to animals to kind of be their scientific research, right? Let's what, let this animal eat the plant first and see if it dies. And then maybe Fred, my buddy, doesn't have to eat the mushroom and, and die. <laughs> so um, animals have long self-medicated, right? My dog has a, a cut on its paw. It's been cleaning it with its saliva all week. It knows to eat grass if its stomach's upset. So these animals have this intelligence and and we've been able to trace it back tens of thousands of years. And they introduced these indigenous societies, not only to microdosing, but also to using these psychedelics in large doses. <laughs> I'm just aware that we have recapitulated that if you're trying to develop a pharmaceutical, what's the first thing you do? You give it to mice. Animal testing. That, yeah. You give it to chimps so that you um, you are recapitulating what indigenous societies have always done. And I love that. <laughs> so, Darwin would too. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, Adam, you offer a variety of classes um, that can be taken online. You've got the masterclass with Dr. Fadiman here. You've got the microdosing masterclass, and you've also got one on how to microdose. How do each of these classes differ? Um, and if you were to advise someone to take them in a specific order, is there one? And what would that be? Yeah, good question. Um, well, the microdosing 101 or the how-tos are probably the best place to start. Those would be really good for anybody that is brand new to psychedelics, brand new to microdosing, doesn't have much feedback. We really drop into the basics in, in those classes. And then the master class, uh, which is the most recent class, that really dives into the advanced stuff too. We bring in some doctors and scientists who talk about the neuroscience of the brain with psychedelics. Um, we bring in uh, Jim himself, who does, I think, more than 60 minutes of, of teaching and answering questions about microdosing. Um, and it dives a little deeper. It also dives into that ancient history that I was just talking about with the animal use. Uh, talks a little bit about that stoned ape theory um, and, and a bunch of other things. So the microdosing masterclass is more of a masterclass. You know, I, I think there's more than 10 hours of information in that masterclass. Um, and it does take touch on some of the beginning stuff as well. So it's it's more of a how-to beginner, and then there's an advanced, which also could work for beginner and moderate users as well. In your coaching capacity, uh, have you have you worked with veterans? And um, is there any kind of trend that you see with veterans, or just the majority of people that you are do, offering one-on-one -on -one mentorship to? Yeah, I see a lot of veterans, and I see a lot of. Um, um, people over 60 and 65. And I think that in the same way that we were just talking about how cannabis has been effective for aches and pains in the older generation, I really think microdosing could be a hugely effective tool uh, for people 65 and older. You know, as we get older, our brain naturally um, deteriorates. Um, and then giving somebody over 65 lion's mane mushrooms and, and psilocybin mushrooms in small doses multiple times a week, um, I think actually um, could potentially help their brain. So a lot of my clients are, are over 60. Jim and I taught a um, workshop with Esalen Institute, and I would say 75% of the four to 500 people that showed up were 65 and older. So a lot of the people that are contacting me are, um, you know, not 20, they're, they're not 30, they're actually 65. And they actually, maybe they did psychedelics in the 60s, but they've given it up for 40 years and, and they're interested in, in giving it a shot. So uh, I see a lot of, of people 65 and older, a lot of veterans, it's very helpful for veterans. You know, it's helpful for veterans to go and do the large dose experience but they eventually have to come back and integrate into their normal life. Um, using these, these uh, tools in small doses can be hugely effective for things like depression. Again, we've talked about how your brain is ruminating consistent negative thoughts. Um, you know, the microdosing seems to disrupt that, seems to allow you to think more creatively, think differently about your past trauma, think differently about your potential future. So, um, I think it's great for veterans. You know, mental health is an epidemic right now, whether it's veterans, whether it's uh, kids in their 20s that would normally be prescribed Adderall. Um, I think this is a huge, huge alternative to things like Adderall and um, amphetamines. Jim, you said something earlier um, that's been scratching at my mind. Um, 
No, you, you said that you're you don't advocate for the not advocate. Maybe that's the wrong word. Um, you are not using synthetics, um, you know, or or derivatives of some of these of these um, substances. Can you talk about why? Yeah, let me clarify. Microdosing is self-generated. People wish to microdose. They also wish to acquire substances which, except in um, in the EU, are illegal. Um, synthetic psilocybin is used in almost all the research that you've read. What we don't have is the difference between synthetic psilocybin and psilocybin mushrooms in a mushroom, in what's called an entourage of other alkaloids. Um, and we have, uh, Paul Stamets talks about someone who actually has done both. And he basically said that the psilocybin took him to a high place, this was high dose, and then he came down. And he said, when I used the same thing for with mushrooms, I went to the same high place, but coming down was much slower and much easier, and I was able to integrate a great deal on the way down. Now, and of one, but it says there's a difference. And um, I'm involved with a mutual friend of Adams and mine, um, Connor Murray, in UCLA, and we are actually testing the difference between synthetic and natural in entourage in in a in a roundworm. A roundworm is about this big, and it is the most. It's called C. Period elegans. And it's the most studied organism in the world because it was the first organism where they did the, the full DNA, you know, um, blueprint. We're finding out: um, Do they prefer, you know, how do they how do they feel on natural versus synthetic? Now, the secret of why people like C. elegans it has a lifespan of thirty days, hmm. so you get to do your whole experiment from birth to death. And um, we're, see, we're going to see, we're seeing differences. And the question is, if we're seeing serious differences, we have to relook at all the research that's been going on with this this kind of isolated form versus the natural. Now, I admit I am totally biased toward nature. I think if you have a couple of million years to work something out, you're probably going to get it right finally. And if you have uh, a couple of months to try and make money on it, you're not likely to do as good a job. So we'll see. Um, that's just, remember 80% of the medicines um, up till about 15 years ago were all derived from, from plants and fungi and so forth. We now derive them from computer models and that may be beneficial, but that's the reason. And the reason I mentioned it when we're talking is almost nobody who who we correspond with and who we work with worldwide has access to synthetics, nor particularly wants to. Remember, mushrooms, not knowing they're illegal, grow on all continents except Antarctica. So they're available. And that's that's a big difference. So that, that's the only reason I, I mentioned synthetics is because most, when people are microdosing, they like to know what they're taking. And what they're taking almost always is something that nature has been working on, not that big pharma would love to make money from. Nothing wrong with making money um, from psychedelics, but that's not how it works with, with, in the microdose world. So let's let's look ahead then at, at legalization. Um, uh, I want to hear from both of you. Jim, first, uh, when, when do you anticipate seeing more progress and, and what do you think it'll look like? Well, I was actually asked to consult <laughs> with, a, with a, a client of a, of a design and smart firm in, in England, and their client wanted to, you know, get a five-year projection on on where psychedelics were going, particularly microdosing. And what, after getting over my kind of automatic '60s aversion to being successful in business. <laughs> What I, what I realized was it's likely that we will probably see microdoses with different add-ons, add with different stacking, as given as medications for specific condition. So that uh, the important thing in the pharmaceutical and the grocery space is called shelf space. How much shelf space can you take? And if you have one item 
that handles everything, you get you know two inches of shelf space. But if you have the same item in slightly different flavors, think breakfast food cereals, you get more shelf space. And I realize that's probably, if I were being commercial, that was probably how it will go. Now, if it has to go through the FDA process for every different condition, that won't be. Um, the FDA, remember, the FDA is, is the reason a lot of the research you're seeing is done in a particular way that isn't necessarily sensible or correct for psychedelics is because people are aiming towards commercialization. And what if the FDA said you need to put it in a great big metal pot and you have to have elderly women with brooms stirring it for six hours before you can market it, I assure you that's the way we would be doing research. So we're now doing research with psychedelics as if they are invented pharmaceuticals. And there's a lot of research that basically is way over cost and way and, and very, very little benefit. So, so we haven't found, see, we have the indigenous model is very straightforward. Uh, nature gives you what you want. If you find some, you don't take all of it, so it'll regrow. And you use it when it's appropriate and not in general. We have no indigenous evidence, and Adam I'm, can, I hope not correct me, of people misusing microdoses in their own culture. So Adam, Adam uh, what do you, yeah, what do you think? Oh, I was going to say, what do you think? <laughs> well, I spent a decade in California under Prop 215 and then went legal and went through that shit show and dumpster fire that was cannabis legalization that single-handedly ruined the cannabis space for so many, so many of the originals, the legacy farmers, growers, producers, and then just drove the price so ridiculously low that... Um, even people on the black market had to leave the game and figure something else out. So we definitely don't want to go the way that we went with cannabis. That was not done correctly. Taxes and all that stuff are still too high. Lack of shelf space, like Jim said, was a, was another big problem. But I think the first step is to decriminalize. Let's talk about just California, the state that we live in, Jim and I live in. It will be great if we decriminalized psychedelics, right? And we made it the lowest uh, law enforcement um, necessity and we stopped arresting people. And then we looked at legalization differently and we didn't make it cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to get a license and totally uh, build it out to the rich and successful. Um, so I heard there's a new proposition may be coming across in California that talks about you simply have to be a California resident. You have to have started a corporation or an LLC within the borders of California. Um, and then basically everybody gets a license to sell their product um, and it's open to everybody and you don't have to pay all kinds of money and have the perfect zoning. Um, so I hope we can decriminalize it first so people are not arrested if they don't want to get a license and if they want to continue to do their underground um, spreading of these tools. Because let's be honest, this has been illegal for 30, 40 years and millions of people are still using psychedelics, right? There are still people um, getting their friends mushrooms and growing them and, and making a living out of it. So um, we want to make sure that everybody can still be a part of it. If you want to be legal um, and do it legally, you can. If you're a part of the indigenous community and you want to travel up to California and do ceremonies and take the money back to feed your community, you should be able to do that too. So I think we have to go completely different than cannabis and we need to make sure that people with no money um, can still be able to enter the space. Now, remember, America has did an experiment with drug regulation. It was called prohibition. It had one major effect, aside from giving crime families a incredible opportunity to expand and, and develop. It also moved America towards hard drinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was living in Europe and, and uh, as a 21-year-old, and people would say, why do Americans get drunk when they go to a social occasion? I say, well, they're used to, you know, they're used to basically coming to not to wine and to beers, but to hard liquor. And hard liquor, if you're in the illegal business, basically you want less shelf space, so to speak. <laughs> so um, psychedelics being the second thing we made illegal, 
uh, and Adam says it's you know it's it's around a lot of people. The the U.S. government data, and we can only assume it's a low number for them, because it comes from government-sponsored surveys, which is you're supposed to check off what illegal drugs you've been using and how often. So we think it's underreported. Since LSD, et cetera, were made illegal, 40 million Americans have used psychedelics. And we're not talking about microdoses, just this is all high dose. Uh, and if we run that against, say, the education, we'll find most of that 40 million in the top 50% of educated. So what we know is um, the market is there. We started with a commercial question. The market's there. Um, people, what, what we know in a lot of countries, make something illegal. You simply uh, invite the people who work illegally to flourish. Mm -hmm. So um, my guess is that, that commercialization will will. Um, will not help the black, what you want at least is commercialization that doesn't help the black market. That's at like a minimum. Right. Uh, and as Adam pointed out, cannabis didn't do it very well. And we'll see, well, decriminalization is wonderful because it says you are not being punished by your government if you want to become healthier. Whoa. Yeah, imagine that. I mean, so last week was a, a really, not a quiet week in the world of cannabis. And I guess, Adam, given your history and background, I have to ask you, we're recording this on um, September 5th. What, what was your take on the HHS recommendation to the DEA on rescheduling? Well, the little I've seen on it is the rescheduling plays into the hands of um, big money and the, and the big boys. Uh, I, I don't know enough about it to give you a, uh, uh, my opinion on it, but the people that I follow on social media, who I believe strongly in, in the cannabis space and who are the OGs in the space, they, they don't like the looks of it at all. <laughs> it's, you know, the, the government is trying at least. Okay. And there's this growing group in Congress who are, you know, the cannabis lobby in Congress. There's also a psychedelics mm -hmm. lobby. There yeah. are there are now elected representatives who are saying the reason I think we should make psychedelics more available and and uh, reschedule them is I personally have benefited. Okay, that's the big shift. It's yeah. no longer. Uh, it's not only no longer shameful and dangerous to say you use psychedelics. It's not very interesting. And that's a huge cultural shift. The question very often is. Why haven't you used psychedelics? You're a biochemist. You're a senior scientist. You're a uh, an, an entrepreneur. Are you really telling me that you've never used psychedelics? And the answer usually is, well, it was a, it was a long time ago, and so forth and so on. So we're having a cultural shift where the 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 misinformation is kind of being passed over. Because one of the wonderful things about the current generation is if you have a very small window of attention. Um, history, you know, there are people who feel psychedelics were probably made illegal sometime after the Civil War, but maybe not much. So, so it's 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 becoming ancient history very fast. So, if there was, if there was one story or or one one, uh, you know, I think this is a good way to wrap it up too. If each of you could tell me one story that you wish. Uh, was in uh, on the front page of the LA Times tomorrow or the New York Times um, in terms of advancing either legalization or decriminal decriminalization in the in the world of psychedelics or microdosing or whatever whatever it is. What's the untold story there that you would love to see? Let me think about it. Well, see if Adam can, can work. No, no pressure, Adam. <laughs> I got it. I got it. It's going to say microdosing replaces antidepressants as a more effective, non-toxic, non-habit-forming option. I think that that would be a great headline because that's where I see the most gains with everyone that I'm working with is in mental health. And uh, I think it's a great option. It was the original um, medicine. I mean, if you look at the Mazatec community, where Maria Sabina uh, is from, they've been using mushrooms since the beginning of their society, right? And they use small doses to treat uh, even colic in babies sometimes mixed with breast milk. So 
Again, I think that big headline would be, we woke up, we realized that this is medicine and we don't have to make it in a lab. Okay. Was that enough time for you, Jim? <laughs> New drug czar of psychedelics is the president and CEO of Flow State Micro. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're, um, we're, we're almost at that place. Remember, uh, psychiatry is now admitting that antidepressants aren't very good. They're better than zero, but so are a lot of things. And they are also admitting that the research on psychedelics has almost all been with people who failed everything else. That's that's probably the headline that I might like. Psychedelics improve so many conditions that medicine is beginning to reform itself around psychedelics as a base, as it has in the past for antibiotics and then for antidepressants. Too long a headline. I the LA Times could handle it. We'll get we'll get someone to edit that, but both articles that I would read. Um, thank you, thank you so much, gentlemen. It was really an honor and a pleasure to talk to you, um, Jim, Adam. Uh, any 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 other last words? Otherwise, thank you so much. Thank no, you. Just, yeah, I think we're just um, we're just happy to have been with you and and with the questions. We rarely get kind of commercial questions. Um, I mean, it, and it's that interesting. Really allows us to think aloud rather than kind of stuff that we've said before, and that's always a pleasure. Oh, good! I'm so happy to hear that because you know we yeah. don't we don't want you to be bored. No, no. <laughs> and, and I, I have a book coming out uh, in a year or so uh, with St. Martin's, um, and so send me something about what you do for people to help authors. Okay. Will do. Will you come back on and talk about it? Oh, hey. <laughs> hey. All right. Emmeline, let's book it. You got it. Thank you both so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Huge thanks to Dr. Jim Fadiman, the father of microdosing, author and independent researcher, and to Adam Bramlage, founder and CEO of Flow State Micro. Check them out at James Fadiman. That's J-A-M-E-S-F-A-D-I-M-A-N.com and Flow State Micro, F-L-O-W. S-T-A-T-E-M-I-C-R-O.com. As always, thanks for listening. If you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast or drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We love hearing from you guys. One take, Shay. One take. Get